Okay, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 30. Isaiah and chapter number 30. And here we are. It is January 2nd, and we are now into a new year. And of course, everybody expects the first message to be one on the new year. So I'll try not to disappoint you, but uh, we'll do that here in just a moment. It's great to see you each uh, of you. How many of you uh, were uh, left the area for some of the Christmas uh, holiday time? Can I see your hands, please? How many left the area? Okay, just a few of you. I know there are others that are out of the area will be back, I'm sure, in the days ahead. But it is uh, uh, certainly good to be here when we come home about early December, mid-December, uh, we've been traveling so much we consider it a vacation just to be home. So uh, uh, we usually make our plans to stay here all the way through. And about, I think it's January 17th, my wife and I will be heading out uh, in meetings, uh, first in Indiana, then we have three in Arkansas. I got to thinking about this in Arkansas. The last time I did a meeting in Arkansas, I've been through Arkansas before that, but the last time I did a meeting in Arkansas was 1985. And uh, so we're going to do three meetings, uh, revival meetings in Arkansas. I'm very excited about that. My wife and I will be doing revival meetings this spring. Every other spring we uh, just take uh, time to do uh, local church revival meetings. And then in the fall we'll be back to War Special Forces. And so we would, we would appreciate your prayers. We'll try to keep you updated in the prayer bulletin of where we are and what God's doing. And, and uh, how, we're, uh, how uh, uh, you can pray for us more effectively as we're out there on the trail, particularly in local church revival meetings. And so, uh, so I just want to give you an update on that. We had a wonderful fall, and I appreciate those of you that prayed for us. Every week we're in a different Christian school. Uh, there was one time we did a revival meeting, but everything else was Christian school. Had a wonderful team, and God used them. And uh, I'd say every week God did some remarkable things, and we were very excited about the whole tour and looking forward again to getting back at it in the fall. There's something, uh, uh, this was the first tour where we got kind of semi back to normal uh, with the coronavirus situation, but um, I, I did sense that God had used the circumstances uh, to uh, kind of rattle the young people, and I feel like many of them recognize that life may never return exactly like it was before, and uh, I felt like they were, many of them were open to God doing the work in their hearts, so we're grateful for your prayers. Now, I do want to mention this. I hesitate to mention it because I forget about it, uh, but some people have asked me, what happened to your face? And I will say sometimes, so those of you who have seen me, it looks like my face turned into a dartboard, but that's not actually what happened. I want to say, first of all, it is not leprosy, okay? I just want to tell you that, and it is not shingles either. It is not contagious. Uh, it is simply self-inflicted. In other words, uh, a few years ago, uh, I think it was my wife, it could have been myself, thought, you know what, better get one of those old men uh, physicals, if you know what I'm talking about. And just see how I'm doing. Had been to the doctor in a while, so I went and did a physical, and the guy said, you better get to a dermatologist. You've got some precancerous skin polyps there, or whatever, I don't know what they call them. And so I went to the dermatologist, been about a three-year journey trying to get rid of some of that stuff. And uh, so the last treatment I did, I was on the road, so you didn't see that one. However, my, red turn, my nose turned red. And um, I, I was uh, Jim, the uh, red-nosed preacher. But anyway, and um, uh, so that's what happened. You weren't around to see that. It was pretty bad. My wife even tells me it was bad. But anyway, it's kind of nice when you're on the, um, the end. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> you don't see it. But it, uh, uh, so I just wanted to be declared, uh, not, it's, it should be good. I think my last treatment is tonight. And then uh, it should start healing, so I should be back to normal uh, in a few, uh, few weeks. But anyway, so I wanted to make sure that's and particularly live stream there. Well, wondering what's going on. But I just wanted to make that clarification. Uh, again, I forget about it until somebody asks me. Every once in a while, you know, somebody asks, what happened to your face? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, there is a problem there. Okay, so just want to get that one out of the way. Okay, well, it is a new year, and we're here in Isaiah chapter number 30. 
And what I'd like us to do here is um, read a few verses of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to actually preach down through verses 15. And so we're going to go through several, paths, uh, several verses of Scripture. So read a few and we'll be uh, a word of prayer and begin the message. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin unto sin. They walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked of my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt shall you be your confusion. Let's pray. Lord, would you work, I pray. Would you help us really on the brink of a new year to be stirred about the subject at hand. Lord, we recognize we are in a battle. And I think many of us see it. And we see social issues. We see political issues. We get burdened about our country. Uh, we just see the state of God's people. And there are things that burden us when we recognize that we are in a battle. Lord, the children of Israel are in the same situation, yet they went the wrong direction. May we learn by their example this morning and be encouraged and helped. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In December of 1966, our family moved from Durango, Colorado to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, you say, what was that like? It's called culture shock. That's what it's called. Uh, there are probably not two more uh, um, different uh, cultures in the United States than uh, Durango, Colorado and Chicago, Illinois. But it was not long as a little boy in first grade there in Chicago and then in the second grade, third grade. But I began to realize that a lot of my classmates were Chicago Cubs fans. Now, we were on the south side, but at that time, the White Sox were so bad, everybody was a Cubs fan, and there were very few genuine White Sox fans. And so I kind of came along with the rest of them, and, and uh, pretty soon I would put the names uh, Don Kessinger and, and Ron Santo and Ernie Banks. I know for many of you those are heretical names, uh, but because um, you're a, a fan of a different team, but that's uh, kind of the aura I grew up in. And uh, one of those baseball players particularly became kind of special, and that was Ernie Banks. There was something about Ernie Banks, he just was always jovial. And in every spring training, Ernie Banks would come up with a saying about the coming year. And a couple I found on the internet, I was trying to remember them, but one was, the Cubs are due in 62. That didn't end up happening, but anyway. Uh, and then the Cubs are going to shine in 69, and actually they did shine in 69 until September. Okay, 10 games above the Mets, and they lost in the New York Mets. That's back before you had wild cards, and if you were in second place, tough. Okay, so that's what happened. But um, uh, so I thought to myself, you know, I ought to come up with a saying for 22. So how about it? This is the message title, Rely on Who in 22? Okay, we'll turn it into a question. Okay, who are we going to rely on in 22? And so I'd like to spend just a simple message here this morning. I'm going to give you the two points ahead of time. Of course, we'll start with the first point, and then we'll go to the second point. Really, the two points are the false reliance, or the false reliances, and number two, the true reliance. Okay, there's basically two places we can go uh, to rely on in 22. Now, as I already mentioned, we certainly have recognized in the last couple of years things have changed. And for many of us who have been around for a while, uh, the word unprecedented is really uh, the word that is to be used, except it seems to be overused as we've watched different things happen. But uh, the children of Israel were in a very similar situation. They were, uh, uh, Syria was threatening them. And it looked like their country was going to be overrun. It was not a good situation. Things are falling apart. They no longer had the glory of the glory years of Israel. And, and so they were in trouble. And at this particular point, 
they had to make a choice of who they were going to rely on. And unfortunately, they made some really bad choices, which resulted in their ultimate demise and eventually deportation. So first, of course, Israel went uh, to Assyria, was deported to Assyria. Then later, Judah was deported to Babylon. Many of us are familiar with that. This was, of course, earlier here, Isaiah in the northern uh, part of the kingdom. And, of course, Assyria was the big threat at the time. And their big temptation, in a moment we're going to see this, was to go down to Egypt for help, which is kind of funny because Egypt is the country they came out of. And now going back to Egypt to get some help. So let's just look at this. We're going to walk through this passage of Scripture. I see three different aspects of false reliances that we are tempted to in our own particular lives. And although in a certain sense I'm not just primarily, I'm really not primarily referring to the political climate or the social issues or some of the burdens that we have when we look at our country falling apart in many different ways that concern us, I want us to more focus on the fact of our own hearts and lives. Sometimes external circumstances bring to us spiritual battles in our own hearts. And there are things that we face. And uh, maybe it's the battle of a, a besetting sin. Maybe it's the battle of a deteriorating relationship. Maybe it's the battle uh, of a situation in your own heart that you can't resolve. I don't know, but we all have battles. We all have times that the enemy comes upon us. Many times one of the ways I've particularly been blessed by the book of Psalms is whenever the book of Psalms is talking about an enemy, uh, I try to make the application to the enemy, the enemy. Uh, of course, Satan as well as the world and the flesh. And many times those principles given in the book of Psalms can be a great help and so it is here. There's some principles given to overcome the enemy uh, when we're in a battle. Now there are three enemies that we as believers face on a daily basis. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now I will say this friends, not everything is the devil. Sometimes we get the devil way too much credit. And uh, one thing I've, I've learned about, I've said this before from the pulpit here, I get concerned when a ministry is, is framed up and characterized by spiritual warfare. And they put a lot of focus on Satan. I will tell you, friends, the focus of any ministry ought to primarily first be on Jesus Christ. We may have to deal with the enemy, but the enemy is not the focus, okay? He's a satellite. And, and many times we, we blame everything on the devil. And I will tell you, friends, the devil is not God. Now, I think he can move around really quickly, but he is not omnipresent. He has minions, and I'm sure they have ways to communicate. I don't understand it all, but he's not even close to where God is. It's complete uh, disparity of power, no doubt about it. But nonetheless, sometimes we do face uh, demonic things, but many times it's just our own flesh. I find one of the issues, and I've said this before, one of the issues you can always tell is the flesh. The flesh is sourced. This flesh is sourced. You're driving down the road and see a sensual billboard and are tempted to sensual thoughts, that temptation is the flesh because it's sourced. You see the source right there. Are you hopefully uh, uh, avoided it? But sometimes you just look and don't even realize it's there and, and the temptation is sourced. If you're being provoked by somebody, maybe in a conversation, and they're saying provocative things, and you're tempted to get angry and to respond with um, uh, bitter words, uh, that's sourced. That's the flesh. The flesh is always sourced. You can see the source of temptation, and that helps you understand the world is also very sourced. You can sense the world. And I remember years ago when I was watching some of those WGN Cub fan uh, Cub games back in the day in the 1960s. Everything was a day game, so you'd go home from school and it's about the fifth inning, you know, and watch the rest of the game. That happened all the time when I was growing up. And and uh, but there was a, there was a beer company at the time that was uh, always doing commercials, and it was you only go around once in life, so get all the gusto you can. 
And uh, that, uh, that's sourced. That's a worldly philosophy. It's sourced. You know where the temptation to think incorrectly is coming from. It's right there. It's sourced. And so uh, the world and the flesh are sourced. And I find the issue of the enemy many times is not sourced. In other words, Satan is a deceiver. And he many times will tempt us. And, and those many times temptations are like out of the blue. Like, where'd that come from? It'd be like having a time where you're meeting with God and all of a sudden sensual thoughts flood your mind. That's not sourced. Many times we need to recognize that's the enemy. Uh, maybe all of a sudden there's a temptation to get frustrated about something you really have had victory about and there's no pr provocation at the moment. It's not sourced. I at that time wonder if it's the enemy. And uh, I've had situations when you're in intense ministry and there begins to be tension with another team member or, or tension, whatever, and you're getting frustrated about things and you realize, wait a second, there's, there's nothing really sourced here. It's just uh, it's the enemy trying to distract us. So, so I'm not, uh, that's not my message, but we're in battles with the world, flesh, and the devil on a daily basis. Now, when you're in a battle with that, you have to understand the only way you'll ever get victory is the one true reliance, which we're going to get to. But let's just go through some of the false reliances that we often, I mean, God's people, I mean, all of us, myself included, can easily fall into these particular temptations to trust the wrong thing in the battle. First of all, the first temptation the children of Israel had was the temptation to trust themselves. Now look, if you would please, at verse number one, it says, Woe to the rebellious children, he's talking about his, the children of Israel, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me. Now notice, if you would please, their own counsel. Their own counsel. In other words, if those of you in Sunday school, what did we say? Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, if you will go in such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away, for that she ought to say, if the Lord will. We shall live and do this or that. If you were in Sunday school, we just dealt with that. But our own counsel. Now, that's, the Bible's not telling us that uh, we shouldn't get counsel from others. And the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But the bottom line, even in that, is there's a desire, Lord, I want you to show me what to do. If you want to use others, you want to use circumstances, you want to make it clear in my own heart, that God's light, there's no darkness. But the idea is they are not looking to the Lord. They just had their own counsel. And I will tell you, friends, if you make decisions in life without consulting with the Lord, that's what God's talking about. That's a false reliance. And I don't know about you, I've made some bad decisions in life. Fortunately, they haven't been major ones, but they've been such that after you make that, you know what? I probably shouldn't have done that. I didn't seek the Lord about that, and I regret that decision. And uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. So their own counsel. There's a second one, their own religion. Notice what it says there in the second part. And that ye cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin unto sin. That word is a very interesting word. I, didn't, I don't have time to fully lay it out, the idea of cover with the covering. But the idea is it's, it's literally pour out a libation or the idea of a drink offering. Or it could be the idea of, of, of making a molten image. Okay, In other words, it's the idea that they sought out a false religion or they sought out their own way to approach to God. And, but it was not of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you today, but I find a lot of people today who really, that when it comes to the things of God, they literally take their own thoughts about religion and they dismiss the Word of God. In fact, it was just a few weeks ago out at the village, I began a conversation with a gentleman from Iguanago, and it was kind of amazing. He was all the way up here. He was not a churchgoer, and, and uh, he had just come up for the village, and we began a conversation. I moved to the gospel. I began giving the gospel, and I was looking him right in the eye as we were speaking. He was an older gentleman, probably older than I am, and uh, as we were talking, he looked at me. He says, I don't want to talk to you anymore. 
He said, I don't agree with what you're saying. And he turned and walked off. It was really kind of an abrupt ending of the conversation, which uh, I missed all the signals that there was a problem. And uh, he walked off. But you know, the point is, it really doesn't matter what I say, and it really doesn't matter what you say, but it does matter what God says. Most of my conversation was simply Scripture. And when somebody says, I don't agree with that, and they're disagreeing with you quoting Scripture, their problem is not with you, their problem is with God. And may I say this, sir, and lady, it does not matter what you think about religion. If it is not biblical, you're wrong. You see, the problem is, is that many times today, people to give more weight to their own thought processes than they do to the revelation of the Word of God. It's their own religion. If you think you get to heaven by being good, the Bible says you're wrong. If you think you get to heaven by going to church and doing certain things or, you know, whatever, and, and getting, uh, going to confession or being confirmed or being baptized or whatever, the Bible says you're wrong. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. In other words, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. So their own religion. So there's that false reliance. People come up with their own way to get to God or their own thinking about religious things. I've met them all throughout the country. You probably have too. And then their own direction. Look what it says in verse number two. That walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked of my mouth. Okay, in other words, they're already sending ambassadors down to Egypt to try to get a treaty and get Egypt to help them overcome Assyria. But God wasn't in it. They didn't ask that of God. They just did their own thing. Here we go. Let's go their own direction. And uh, down doing something God was not in. You'll see in verse number, uh, we won't look there for time, but in chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. And of course, Egypt is a type of the world, and we'll see that in a moment. So uh, many times it's very easy in battles or whatever to trust ourselves. And what are problems, pressures, difficulties, hardships, and uh, to trust ourselves instead of looking to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? God, what's the Bible principle I need to operate on here? Uh, what's, uh, what's your counsel in this situation? And I think if you've lived your Christian life any length of time and you've taken steps of faith in your life, you know what happens when God leads you. Miracles happen. God does the impossible. God overcomes things you never thought could be overcome. You see, God put things together you never thought could be put together. You see, you know the verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. You know, friends, those are wonderful verses, and the, the particular, there are certainly wonderful verses besides what I'm about to tell you, but they were my mother's favorite verses. That would be her life verse. And I will tell you with my mother, that verse, those verses are really, really appropriate. She was born into a home where her parents would have been religious, but we hope they're in heaven, but only God really knows. I understand that my grandfather was extremely superstitious. If a black cat went across his pathway, uh, he would never cross that uh, pathway of that black cat. He'd go all miles around if he had to. Very superstitious. Remember years ago, the chancellor of the Christian university I went to said, uh, if people are uh, not spiritual, they'll be superstitious. I thought, wow, isn't that truth? It's kind of crazy, but it often happens that way. But uh, my grandfather was very superstitious. My grandmother was a good woman. I hope she was saved. Only God knows. Because uh, my mother wouldn't really know because when she was nine years old, her mother died. She died of a brain aneurysm, went out to the uh, barn to milk the cow and fell over uh, there of the brain aneurysm. And a near neighbor nearby 
uh, picked her up, carried her in the house. Years ago, I met the neighbor. He was a teenage boy at the time, and when I met him, he was an old man. <laughs> he was a teenage boy when he carried my grandmother into the house, but my grandmother lingered for two or three days, and then she passed away. If, if it had happened today, we have the medical technology. I am told she would have recovered. She, she would not have died of that stroke, and and so my, my mother at nine years old uh, suffered the loss of her mother. And then at 14, uh, her father died. And the reason is, is my grandfather was 29 years older than his wife. And, and he, was, uh, he was born in 1865, 59 years old, uh, when my mother was born in 1924. And uh, he died as in her early 70s and just of old age, really. And, and so at 14, my mother was orphaned. You know, it seems like here she is just orphaned, uh, little uh, down in central Illinois, a farm girl. Her parents were fairly well off for farmers, and so they left her some means. But uh, my mother became very disillusioned about money because she saw all of the, uh, all her relatives trying to get the money. And it very much disillusioned her on money, like forget money. Who cares about money? And uh, so, uh, uh, but she, uh, she uh, definitely had some means that was left to her at that time, and, and some land was left to her, et cetera. But, so she really didn't have any financial worries at the time, but she went off to a teacher's college in Jacksonville, Illinois, McMurray College, to be a teacher. And she came back after a freshman year, and there's some godly cousins. Harold and Helen Stoutenborough were their names. They were just old farmers, but they loved Jesus. And they walked with Jesus, and they had the reality of God in their life. And they weren't just good Christian people. They were, they were people who walked with God. And uh, they began to urge my mother to transfer to a Christian college. And, and she, uh, she, she looked at them like, a, uh, even though they were cousins, uh, she looked at them uh, like spiritual leadership. And, and so she, uh, she went transferred to a Christian college. And that particular Christian college, she became very good friends with the daughters of Evangelist John R. Rice. And, in fact, uh, uh, John Himes, who's here, there are many of them were, they were our, those uh, are his aunts. And, and she became very good friends with them. And, and she spent some time in the Rice home and was deeply blessed by the ministry of John Rice. And, and uh, from there, of course, uh, she was touched there. She wanted to work for the Sword of the Lord. So she went to work with Dr. John Rice's Sword of the Lord, a Revival Weekly, and became a secretary under Viola Walden. If you know anything about the Sword of the Lord, she, she was an icon for decades there at the Sword of the Lord. And, and uh, she began to, to work there, just a, just a little, just a single girl. And really, her older brother had married. She felt very lonely at times, wondered about her life. But she, she had learned early in life. She never got bitter about God taking her parents. And she never got bitter about some of the things that happened that were very difficult. In fact, she, she really often struggled when people in life would allow circumstances to turn them aside to bitterness. She had, she had very little room for that because she'd been through so much herself and seen that it was just trust the Lord. And, and that's what she began to do. That's why it was a life verse. She didn't trust, the, she didn't know what to do. She just trusted the Lord, didn't lean to her own understanding. And uh, all her ways, acknowledge the Lord. And, and the Lord began to direct her paths. Led her up there to that Christian college. She met the Rice family, began to work for the sword of the Lord. There while she was working at the sword of the Lord, uh, there was a man named D.A. McCall. He was a preacher and he was Scottish. So his nickname was Scotchy. They called him Scotchy McCall. He only was there for two years at the sword of the Lord. And I think one of the reasons he was at the sword of the Lord was for the story I'm about to tell you. While he was there, he saw my mother, 26 years old, single. And uh, he knew my father, who was 26 years old, single down, but he was a pastor in Miami, Florida. This is in the Chicago area. And, and uh, he decided to play Cupid. Okay, you ever known people like that? My dad picked up on that. He, he did the Cupid thing a few times himself. But anyway, uh, he uh, called my dad up in Miami, Florida and said, Wayne, I need you in Chicago immediately. 
And uh, my dad trusted the man, got in his car and drove from Miami, Florida to Chicago, Illinois. That's a long way. This is pre-interstates. Some of you remember, how many remember pre-interstates? Pre-interstates? We got a few that do. Okay, pre-interstates. As back when dinosaurs were going extinct somewhere back there. Okay, before the interstates. And my dad drove all the way up to Chicago and he was going to meet Dr. McCall in a restaurant. So that's what he did. He walked into the restaurant. He was going to meet Dr. McCall and his wife. And he saw his wife there and wondered what in the world's going on. There's Dr. McCall. There's the wife, his wife. And there's a girl, 26-year-old girl. And my dad's thinking, what's that girl doing here? That's why my dad was 26 and single. Okay, what's this girl doing here? Okay, um, middle of the meal, Dr. McCall and his wife said, we'll see you two later. And they walked out of the restaurant. Can you imagine that? Okay, set them up right there. Six months later, they were married. Okay, but anyway, it worked. Good, I'm kind of glad about that. Okay, but here's my point. My, my mother uh, had some difficult circumstances early in her life. But I will tell you, she loved being a pastor's wife. She loved uh, my dad's ministry. She loved my dad. She loved us kids. She loved everything about how God had led her life. I mean, uh, it was just a remarkable thing. And I, she would talk about it from time to time. She said, you know, I really struggled why my parents had to leave early, but I know now why. Because if my parents had lived, I would never have gotten to that college. I would never have met the Rice family. I would never have gone to work for the sword of the Lord. And I would never have met your father. And basically she was saying, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know what, friends? You can trust in the Lord. You don't have to lean to your own understanding. You can in all your ways acknowledge Him. And God promises He will direct, you, direct your paths. There's, you say, preacher, I don't come from a great situation. My parent, both my parents didn't come from great situations. You know what they decided to do? Trust the Lord. Ask God to lead them. And friends, there's difficulties and hardships in life, but don't trust yourself. Trust God. You may be in a place saying, God, I don't know where God's, what God's doing in my life. Trust Him because God knows. He, he knows what you're supposed to do in life. He's got a plan for your life. So trust Him. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In other words, say, God, lead me. I want to do your will. And I believe God will make that clear. So their first problem was they, uh, they trusted themselves. But we see a second problem if you look in the second part of verse number 2. It says... Um, uh, that uh, will just say that go down unto Egypt have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves. Here it is to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Notice if you would please they strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh. Could I put it this way? They were looking to the world. Egypt's a picture of the world. So in this particular uh, the first temptation is to trust ourselves. The second temptation was is to trust the world. You know the world has a lot of philosophies out there and if we're not careful we can fall into to being affected by those philosophies and they can affect us in a, in a wrong way. And that's exactly what happened. They went down and we're going to trust the military might of Pharaoh. And God, of course, condemns it as such. You know, it's like this, friends. Bottom line in our lives, bottom line, you have got to trust God for protection. Now, I'm not saying there aren't human things God may not lead you to do for protection. I understand that. But bottom line there has to be a trust in God. I, um, several years ago now, a man in Virginia, Edinburgh, Virginia, had, walked up to me and handed me a book on Psalm 91. Some of you think I've read that book. And 
I read that book and I was stirred, story after story of people who claim Psalm 91 for protection and help and healing and, and all those kind of things. And, and, and particularly one of the stories grabbed me because uh, it was about a, a, a movie actor by the name of Jimmy Stewart. Some of you are aware of him simply because Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life, kind of uh, resurfaces again. And as I uh, said, I think uh, somewhere along the line, uh, uh, this may shock you, but Clarence uh, the uh, getting his wings is not biblical. I know that dis I had one guy text me and said, you have so disillusioned me that uh, angels don't get wings. Okay, but anyway, you know, earn their wings. But uh, he, of course, uh, is doing it tongue-in-cheek. But Jim, Jimmy Stewart had a very godly father. And his father gave him Psalm 91 and said, I want you to carry this with you everywhere you go because I'm claiming Psalm 91 for you. They say that Jimmy Stewart in World War II flew so many missions that he reached the limit that you could, that you could have and you, you, you couldn't fly any more missions and he stopped recording them. Everybody wanted to go with Jimmy Stewart because he never lost one crew member. And he flew more missions than you're supposed to fly. And he never lost one crew member, never had one plane shot down, never one POW. Every single time he put Psalm 91. Now there's not a magic in putting a piece of paper with Psalm 91 in your pocket. There was, truth was, there was a trusting God for protection. In that book it says there was some city, I don't know, remember, it was some small town in America that did not lose one soldier in World War II because every day that town prayed and claimed Psalm 91 for their soldiers. Now here's my point. It was wrong for those soldiers to have guns and be armed and be ready to protect themselves. But the bottom line is true protection primarily comes from God, not from Egypt. And I will tell you, friends, we, uh, we have to recognize the world's strength is, is minimal. I do remember the story as well. Uh, of course, the uh, Academy did a wonderful job a few years back on the life of Darlene Diebler Rose and her imprisonment down in Indonesia during World War II. But uh, Japanese, of course, took over those islands and took all the men away to a prison camp. And they left the ladies and an older missionary there. A man ministered, Dr. Jaffrey, left them there in the house. And for, for literally a, a, a long amount of time, they, they were surviving on their own in this house in the jungle. And, and uh, one night, there were some bandits came into the house. And Darlene Deba Rose got up and, and saw the bandit and chased him out. Later, she wondered, why did I chase him? She literally, a guy had a knife and a big, big huge saber or something and, and chased him out of the house into the, into the jungle. And uh, after, uh, after the war was over, he, she saw one of those, uh, she saw the, a guy she knew was a part of those being the bandits. And, and she asked him, why didn't, you, why didn't you come back? Why, why, didn't you, why did you run that night? And he said, the reason we didn't come back and the reason you, we ran is because the men that were in white robes were more than we were. That very night she claimed the verse, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about us and delivereth us. Now I know that's an unusual story, but I believe it. I don't know about you, I believe the angel of the Lord will encamp round about them. And so the point is, their protection was in the Lord, not in Egypt. Reminds me of Ezra as well. When he went down, uh, when he made that long trip, he didn't request. He didn't request the, the uh, protection of the king because he said, you know, I don't want the king to think we're not trusting God. Now, I'm I, just simply saying that bottom line, that uh, we have to trust the Lord. So the world's strength and then the world's protection, these kind of go together. C says, and then trust in the shadow uh, of Egypt. Now that even, that very terminology has the idea that it wasn't very trustable. <laughs> have you ever trusted a shadow? It really has the idea that that was a pretty bad thing to do. And, um, 
course, in that same story, evidence not seen, Darlene Diebler Rose, when she was in the prison camp, when uh, toward the end of the, the war, the Americans came over bombing her prison camp. They evidently didn't realize it was a prison camp. And she went out into the bombing raid and went into a ditch. And at that very moment, a thought came into mind. There's a borrowed Bible back in the barracks because the barracks were already on fire because the bomb had been dropped and exploded. In the, and the, where they, or the, not the barracks, but the, where they were staying and were on fire. And, and so she just got up and randomly ran back and grabbed the Bible out of the burning building and came out as the building collapsed. Later, she went back to the very spot she was and there had been an explosion where the bomb had dropped exactly where she was. You know, my point is, friends, simply this and all the world around us, that we have to bottom line get down and say, I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God in the battle. Could be the inward battles, could be the outward battles. But the point is, I'm trusting, I'm trusting God. I'm not going to trust the world. We'll get to that later. It's a false reliance. Psalm 118.8, it is better to put a trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Primarily, friends, our trust and our confidence has to be in the Lord. Okay, so there's a third false reliance. We'll see this down if you drop down to verse number 9. Read a few verses of Scripture here. It says that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the uh, the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. The third false reliance I see, the first was ourselves, the second was the world, Trusting the world's means. The third is to trust sin. Sin. See, the people, the children of Israel began to trust uh, deception. They began to be liars. And they began to trust that. You say, I'm just going to go through these four because they kind of all go together. The second one is they trusted, they uh, rejected the, um, the law of the Lord. In other words, they, they said to the prophets, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear the preaching. I don't want to hear you preach the word of God. I don't want to hear that. Don't prophesy to us. Don't prophesy the truth. You prophesy to us things we want to hear. In other words, they had itching ears. They wanted what they wanted to hear. They did not want what the God wanted to tell them. Now, I'm telling you, friends, sometimes I'll listen to a message from yesteryear, and I'm telling you, I get stirred. And you know what I say to myself? Man, we're wimps today. <laughs> Man, we don't preach like the old timers do. I was driving up from South Carolina, and I had an old cassette tape. I have a 2001 truck. One of the reasons I have a 2001 truck is so I can throw cassette tapes in. Okay, but anyway, still got the cassette tape. How many know what I'm talking about? Cassette tapes. Yeah, okay, these are the real smart people. Okay, whoo, I throw that cassette tape in, and I was listening to old evangelist Glenn Shunk. Anybody remember that name, evangelist Glenn Shunk? It's kind of sad, but he's almost gone in memory. But man, was he ripping it up. I'm telling you, if he preached this morning, I'd have half of you walk out, be offended. I'm telling you. But I'm telling you, he went after the truth. He preached it up one side and down the other. Uh, Glenn Shunk had 22 years of evangelistic ministry. It is estimated he saw 60,000 people saved in his meetings. They said often Glenn Shunk would see 100 people saved in a local church revival meeting. And they weren't the God's people getting saved again. You know what I'm talking about? These were people out in the community getting saved. He confronted. He had one guy that had been saved 20 years, and guy came up to him all upset about the message, and, man, he challenged him about his responsibility to win people to Jesus. He never won one soul to Christ in 20 years. He challenged him about it before that week was out. That man was responsible for 30 people coming to the meetings and getting saved. Hadn't seen one person saved in 30 years. You listen to the message, it'll stir you. You realize, man, we've gotten away from that. You know why we've gotten away from that? Because people don't want to hear it anymore. 
They don't like to hear they're sinners. They don't like to hear that sin's got a bad deal. They don't like to hear, and I know that it's largely this church is an exception. I'm thankful for it. But there may be somebody out there listening or somebody in this auditorium, you don't like to be uh, preaching that preaches the Bible, preaches sin black, hell hot, and uh, Jesus the answer. And yet that's what happened to these people. They said, don't prophesy to us anything. Or just preach to us smooth things. Give us some things that will make us feel good. There are a lot of feel-good preachers out there. I'm telling you, friends, if you feel good without Jesus, your feel good is not going to last. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that brings real peace. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So you have the rejection. Then look at verse number 12. It says, Wherefore thus saith the Holy One in Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay thereupon. They trusted oppression. They trusted perverseness. Now, oppression, obviously, I'd call it intimidation. It's like this. The father who raises his kids with intimidation will find this. There will be a day where you can't intimidate your kids anymore. Do you know, my friend, intimidation won't work. You try to raise your kids by intimidation, I will promise you, there will come a day where you can't intimidate them anymore. Do you know the greatest power in child rearing? Don't miss this. Love. It's the greatest power. Now, I'm not against discipline. The Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the Father, the Son, in whom he delighteth. I'm just simply saying that the real answer in overcome is not intimidation. See, that's what they try to do, intimidation, oppression. Does that sound like the government to you? Politics? Man, you know what a politics is? Blackmail, intimidation. It's uh, all that kind of stuff. That's not the way God operates. See, the children of Israel began to fall into that. Perverseness, okay? In other words, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care what the Bible says. Man, we got perversity in the whole sexuality realm. We got perversity in, in just the whole way we think. I mean, have you ever noticed that uh, people think backwards today? <laughs> the Bible says, woe to them in, in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. I want to tell you something right now. If you call something that is evil good, something that God says is evil, you call it good, you got God's woe on you. And if you call something that is good evil, you got God's woe on you. You have to understand God, what God says is good is good, and what God says is evil is evil. It doesn't matter what man says. It doesn't matter how they package it. And we're living in a day of perversity. We've turned it on its head. God says it's in, in, in uh, Proverbs 17, 15, it's an abomination to those that call uh, good, uh, those that uh, uh, justify the wicked and condemn the just. And we're living in a day when the wicked are justified and the just people are condemned. And God says it's an abomination. All I'm going to tell you, if you know anything about the Bible, that's strong language. It's like Habakkuk that says, woe to them that give their neighbor to drink. You, you are part of serving alcohol. God says you've got God's woe on you. And if you don't think it's a big deal, study the Kennedy family. And you will see it's a big deal. When God pronounces a woe, read the book of Revelation. You know what a woe means? I'll tell you what it means theologically. I don't know, but if I were you, I don't think I'd want to find out. That's my definition. It's kind of a big deal. And it means get out of the way. God's not happy about this. 
We have lost it, friends. We now trust. I'm talking about God's people, our culture. We, get, we, get, we, get, we trust deception and, and we push away the word of God and we trust intimidation and, and political you know, intrigue and, and all that blackmail and we trust perverseness. It's, it just it won't work. And I'm just going to simply say, friends, many people trying to uh, overcome the difficulties and the battles of life. Of course, we've been on a several-year journey talking about things, and my point is not to bring all that back except to kind of tie it in right here. And many people, with all the struggles and the, and the frustrations and the bitternesses and the anger and all the problems in their life, what do they do? They turn to sin. How many times young people look at pornography? I'm going to tell you why. Because they're miserable. And they're trying to medicate the pain with filth. And there's other things people do and the whole alcohol scene and the drugs and the abuse of prescription drugs and, and the list could go on of things that people embrace trying to meet the need of their heart, trying to find meaning in life and the very things they embrace are the very things that complicate the problem. Have you ever noticed when somebody goes to the bottle to try to find relief, when they wake up they're worse off than when they drank the first time? See, it doesn't work. Some of you came from homes where people turn to the bottle and you know it doesn't work. It only makes it worse. See, that's what he's trying to say. Listen, children of Israel, here you are. You've got the enemy on the rise and you're in huge trouble and you're doing this. You're going to deception. You're going to perversity. You're looking to things that will not satisfy. You're trying to get sin now. You're just living it up and stiff-arming God. And God's saying, you're, you've gone the wrong way. Yes, even God's people turn to sin to try to make some meaning out of life. But that brings us to the point number two. And we'll have to go through this. I, I, there's, I, maybe I should just simply say, uh, James 1.15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And all I would just simply say, if you want to look at an example of people who have turned to sin uh, in the battles of life, you, history is replete with examples. You can look at Adolf Hitler. You can look at Al Capone. When Al Capone died, do you know how old Al Capone was when he died? 48. Do you know what he died of? Syphilis. Which he contracted because of his immoral lifestyle. Do you know Al Capone? We think of him, he's almost a legend in, in organized crime. Did you know how long he led uh, the, uh, the gang there in Chicago? He was the leader, I think it was six years. Six years. That's it. It didn't work. Sure, he murdered people. Sure, he had people knocked off. He used intimidation. He used perverseness. And so you've heard us talk about George Mensick, the old gangster that we uh, got saved and we knew as decades later as he, when we moved to Chicago, he was part of the church there. And, and George Mensick, I remember him saying that uh, there was only one clean judge in Chicago. All of them were viable. In Al Capone's day, one clean judge. All of them viable. He said the Catholic Church at that time was completely in with the mob. He said they were one and the same. Now, again, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just trying to tell you what George Mensick said. If you don't like it, you can get upset with George. But anyway, um, on election day, he would go and vote in every precinct. George Mensick would. Uh, you, you ever heard of Chicago? You know, yeah, he'd vote in every precinct and all that kind of stuff. And here's my point. Al Capone, man, he turned to, to sinful activity to try to, to, to be the guy. It lasted six years and he died at 48 in syphilis and he is burning in hell. 
See, it didn't work. Which brings us to the second point, which is the, the very important point, and that's the one true reliance. Now, let's move through this quickly. And I took too much time on the early part, but let's look at the, is the answer. Look at verse number 15. We'll just spend our time in 15 and be done. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And here it is. And you would not. Now, if you want to be delivered, first of all, if you want to be delivered from the guilt and the sin and the wondering if you're, when you die where you're going to go, if you want to be delivered, God tells you how. You return and you rest. Now, I, I believe primarily this verse is talking to God's people, but it's certainly the truth uh, for an unsaved person. You don't return because you've never been there. You turn. <laughs> now, the word return is, is uh, one of the Hebrew words of the Old Testament that is used very often. It's a very common word in the Old Testament. And really, the idea is simply this. I'll read from a, a commentator. For better than any other verb, it combines itself the two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to the good. So it's like this. I don't want this. I want this. You know what repentance is? I, I, I don't want hell. I want Jesus. And so really returning is simply turning. It's turning to Jesus. It's turning to God from idols. It's saying, this won't save me. Jesus will. And you could turn this morning. If you've never been saved, all you do when you get saved is you realize I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, and I can't save myself, and there's nothing I can do to wash my sins away, and there's nothing I can do to deliver myself from eternal judgment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn from this, and I'm going to turn to Jesus because he can wash my sins away and he can save me. See, that's the idea of turn, but it also has the idea for a believer. See, for a believer it's saying, you know, I'm done with it, depending on the wrong things. This won't save and I'm talking now about the Christian sense. This won't deliver me from my issues, but Jesus will. Dr. Wilbur Chapman, a well-known evangelist, before he was an evangelist, he was a pastor, and he had huge crowds. His auditoriums were packed. There was financial prosperity. It was a large church. It was a rich area. He had several rich people in his church and had huge crowds. They had basically uh, enthusiasm. And one day, D.L. Moody, at the end of his life, showed up. He didn't come to preach to listen. He was there for both services that day. The crowds were packed. There was what enthusiasm, what excitement, what preaching, all exciting. And at the end of the day, D.L. Moody walked up and touched the young preacher on the shoulder. And Wilbur Chapman turned around. He says, do you know you are a failure here? You're making a great mistake in your ministry. Your preaching is not winning souls. What you're doing does not count for much. He said, I say this in all brotherly kindness. Now, how would you like to hear that? Well, I'm telling you, J. Wilbur Chapman stung under the rebuke for weeks. It bothered him. First, he reacted. I don't know what right does he, but I mean, Dale Moody was at that time fairly well known. What right? But he knew deep down, he knew it was the truth. He knew something was missing in his ministry. Sure, he had crowds. Sure, he had enthusiasm. But he knew this. He wasn't seeing people saved, and he knew it. It was October 16, 1892. J. Wilbur Chapman came to a point in his life where he turned. And the prayer that changed his life was this, God, would you, I'm willing for you to make me willing about anything. That was the new beginning for J. Wilbur Chapman. You know what he had done, my friend, is he'd said, I'm not trusting this anymore. I'm trusting Jesus. See, it's got to be a turn. This won't, this will. 
Not, not trusting this anymore. I'm trusting this. That's the idea of the turn. Then it says in uh, returning and rest. It was uh, Augustine who said, Our heart is restless until it rests in you. I will tell you, friends, rest is the idea exactly. It's the, it's the over here. It's the sense I'm going to, it's a cessation of self-dependent activity. That's the idea. It's not a cessation of, from activity. It's, it's a cessation from self-dependent activity. It's like this. It's stop trying to do the impossible. Have you ever noticed that impossible things are impossible? Have you ever noticed that? How many out here, and you'd be honest, you dream, you, you dream at night? How many, how many are dreamers at night? Man, I tell you, those of you people who do not dream, you are missing out. Dreams are so exciting. People chase you, trying to kill you. You fall off cliffs. I mean, it's unbelievable. There's something I've learned about dreams. I love it when I fall off a cliff because I always wake up before I go splat on that. Isn't God good about that? You always wake up before you die. That's great, isn't it? Have you ever been chased and you can't run? How many have ever been chased and you can't run? Unbelievable, man. Your heart starts beating like who knows what. Okay, yeah, so commonalities in dreams. But I will tell you, how many of you have ever been able to fly in your dreams? Man, that is the coolest thing, man. If you've never been able to fly in your dreams, you're never going to be able to fly now, so you at least can dream about it. Man, I've been able to fly in my dreams, and I will tell you, every single time I fly in my dreams, I'm so bummed out when I wake up. Oh, I can't fly off. Oh, that'd be so cool just to take off from Ruby Road, fly over here to the church. Wow, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Yep, can't do that. It's impossible. And it doesn't matter how much you flap your arms and how much you try without aid to fly, you're not going to be able to do it because it's impossible. Do you know many people live in the Christian life, that's what they're doing, they're trying to do the impossible. You know what rest is? It's resting in Jesus to supernaturally enable you to do what you can't do. Do you know you cannot be spiritually impacted by the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit teaches you? <laughs> Do you know you can't win anybody else to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit enables you? Do you know you can't get true victory over sin unless the Holy Spirit strengthens you? See, so you know what repentance is. Repentance is, this won't do it. I've been trusting myself. I can't do it, but Jesus can. And I'm going to rest in his, in his character and who he is. So that's rest. But there's a second thing here. We have, first of all, God's, God brings us deliverance. But secondly, God gives strength. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and you would not. Now, the strength we're talking about here, friends, is not human strength. It's divinely supernatural strength. You know, my friend, that Jesus Christ, his strength that the Bible's talking about is not physical. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I don't know how many times... Uh, over the years working in Christian schools, you go out to a ball game and the, the soccer team's out there and they go, I can do all things through Christ and strength. And we're going, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about soccer. If that verse was talking about physical strength, my grandmother would have been a weightlifter. She was one of the most spiritually strong people I've ever known. But you could have beat her in arm wrestling, I guarantee it. Because it's not talking about physical strength. It's talking about spiritual strength. And what God is simply saying is, you want to find spiritual strength, there's two things that will bring spiritual strength. Quietness and confidence. That's where your strength comes from. Wow. You say, what in the world is that talking about? 
Here's the definition of quietness. It implies the absence of strife, war, or trouble on the one hand, and worry or anxiety on the other. It may also imply the absence of a pressing obligation or, again, of some disturbing element that mars a relationship between individuals. That's the definition from the commentary. It's also the same word is found in Isaiah 57, verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. In other words, the idea would be of, of quiet would be the idea of a calm ocean, no storm. Now, where does quietness come from? Well, the Bible tells us where it comes from in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for, anybody know? Be careful for nothing, but in everything. Give thanks. See, the idea, there's twofold here on this particular verse. Uh, but in everything first, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, there's two keys here and I want you to understand. Number one, prayer. And number two, thanksgiving. I had a young man recently I, uh, on our, one of our teams and I was talking to them uh, what, what, and I, and I, I, I was talking to him and as I talked to him I said, you know what I think your greatest problem in your Christian life is? He said, it's just, I said, I believe it's discouragement. He agreed with me. We talked about it a little bit and I was amazed. He, he learned a truth that absolutely took him out of discouragement and you know what it was? He said, every time I'm tending to get discouraged, he said, I start praising God. I start praising God and it pulls me out of my discouragement. Well, that's what the Bible's talking That's what quietness is. Quietness is simply this, that when you begin to get anxious and you get to get bent out of shape and you begin to struggle, is that you begin praising God and you make requests to him with thanksgiving, believing that he will answer. God, show me what to do. God, help me with this. God, would you resolve this problem? God, give me some direction what to do with this situation. And I have found, friends, God will do it. And I'm not... I'm not a, a great example of this. I, I, it takes me too long to get there, but I have learned that you can get be anxious and you can be all worked up, but when you finally get down to it and you begin to praise God and begin to ask Him, believing that He'll do it, you become too quietness. Rest, rest. I want to ask you, friend, is your life characterized by rest or is it characterized by a lack of rest? Because God is simply saying, he says, here's how you get delivered. You turn to God and then you rest in him. You trust him to overcome, to deal with, to work, to enable you, whatever it might be, whatever the need is, you trust God. Confidence, of course, comes from one of the big Hebrew words on the issue of trust. And I don't have time to go into it all, but it's basically uh, what the, the idea is. It's when you trust something, there's a sense of security. There's a sense of, of safety that comes to your heart when you trust something. And that's the idea of confidence. It's that sense of safety and security when you trust God for whatever. God is simply saying that's where you get strength. You get strength. Now, again, we're not talking about inactivity here. In fact, I, I wanted to conclude the message, and I know I've gone a tad over, and I appreciate so much your good attention here, but I wanted to com com complete the message with, from the life of, of um, a guy named Ian Thomas. And Ian Thomas was uh, uh, in the military in England back years ago, and he recently passed away at an old age. But he talked about his young life. He got saved as a teenager and sensed God's call to be a missionary, and he went off to prepare to be a missionary, and here's his own words. He said, if, the, if there was ever any evangelist activity going on, this youthful zealot was buzzing around the place every holiday, every spare moment. 
He started a, a slum club down in the east end of London. He set out a sheer desire to win souls. He said to go out and get them. I was a windmill of activity until at age 19, every moment of my day was packed tight with preaching, talking, counseling. In the Major's own words, we continue his story, the only thing that alarmed me was that nobody was converted. Gets a little discouraging after a bit, doesn't it? The more I did, the less happened, and it was not a question of insincerity. The prospects and environment were good. There was plenty of ammunition, plenty of target, but nothing happened. I became deeply depressed because I really loved the Lord Jesus with all my heart. I wanted to be made a blessing to fellow men, but I discovered that forever doubling and redoubling my efforts in order to win souls, rushing here, dashing there, taking part uh, uh, in this campaign, taking part in that campaign, preaching in the morning, preaching in the evening, talking to the Bible class, witnessing to this one, counseling with another, did nothing. Nothing, nothing to change the utter barrenness, the emptiness, the uselessness of my activity. I tried to make up with noise what I lacked in effectiveness and power. In other words, he probably screamed a little louder, okay? Thus, by the age 19, I had been reduced to a state of complete exhaustion spiritually until I felt there was no point in going on, and there was certainly no point in going to Africa. Because if it was a, a question of energy and earnestness and zeal and doing things, well then, that I'd, then I had failed. I did not know any other answer. I was prepared to go to Africa and be as useless there as I already was in England. There's nothing magic about getting on a boat. There, of course, that didn't fly in those days. There's nothing magic about changing your geographical position or putting on a little pair of tropical shorts and a sun helmet. I thought that was funny. That will not make you a soul winner overnight. Do not imagine that you will be any more spiritually effective on the mission field than you are in your right hometown. Indeed, you will find it a thousand times more difficult. Then one night in November, that year just at midnight in my room at home, I got down on my knees before God and I wept in sheer despair and I said, Oh God, I know that I'm saved. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm perfectly convinced that I'm converted. With all my heart, I've wanted to serve Thee. I've tried my uttermost and I'm a hopeless failure so far as doing anything more. I am finished. I'm not going to be a missionary. It is useless for me to continue like this. I hate this double life. That night, things happened. You see, you will never turn until you get absolutely dissatisfied with where you are. In other words, you'll never say, this isn't going to cut it, this will, until you realize this isn't going to cut it. That was the first stage. Then he writes, with nothing to support the theory and without the testimony of any known Christian to the facts, I simply said to Jesus that night, well, it is that or nothing. If this is true, then I'm going to thank thee for it. Um, let me see, did I get... Uh, Okay, no, here it is. I can honestly say that I never once heard from the lips of men the message that came to me right then. I'd never read it in print, but God that night simply focused upon me the Bible message of Christ, who is our life. This was the moment he had been waiting for seven weary years. He'd watched me running around, round in the wilderness. He had been waiting for the time when at last I would fall down in hopeless despair. I heard his voice, to me to live is Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. Where in Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall we appear with Him in glory. Those are all verses of Scripture throughout the New Testament. Life, new life, to me to live is Christ. It just came from every area of God's Word, and very kindly and very lovingly, the Lord seemed to make it plain to me that night through my tears of bitterness. You see, for seven years, with utmost sincerity, you've been trying to live for me on my behalf, the life I've been waiting for seven years to live through you. I've been there all the whole time. All the things you've been pleading for, all the things for which you've been asking, have been yours since the day seven years ago at your request and invitation I came into your heart at the boys' camp. But you see, although you have given mental consent to the truth that I have been in your heart and have accepted as theory, you have lived totally ignoring the fact. You have been busy trying to do for me all that I can only do through you. 
Now suppose I am living your life and you begin to accept it as a fact that I am your strength. You've been pleading and begging for that for seven years. I am your victory in every area of your life if you want it. I am the one to whom it is perfectly natural to go out and win souls and I know precisely where to find them. Why don't you begin to reckon upon me and say, thank you. With nothing to support the theory and without the testimony of any known Christian of the facts, I simply said to Jesus that night, well, it is that or nothing. If this is true, then I'm going to thank thee for it in cold-blooded faith with no evidence to support it and nothing but a history of failure behind me. I'm going to thank thee that if thou art my life and this is true, then thou art my victory, thou art my strength, thou art my power, thou art my future, thou art the one who is going to go out now clothed with me in, uh, to do all that I am so hopelessly been trying to do for the past seven years. Then I went up to sleep. Said I woke up the next morning a totally different person. Said two days later, he said he had a boys class. He went to that boys class, presented the gospel, and 30 young men got saved. He never had one convert in seven years. And I'm going to tell you exactly what happened to Ian Thomas. In fact, later on, I like this, what he says, such a course is not inactivity, as the major explained. It is simply Christ activity. In other words, this won't cut it. I'm returning. I'm re repenting in a certain sense. This won't cut it. I've done it. Self-dependence won't do it. Dependence on the world won't do it. Dependence on sin won't do it. And I'm turning over here to Jesus. And God, I'm going to rest in who He is. Notice the word rest. And God says you'll be delivered. You will be delivered. In quietness and confidence, it's going to be your strength. In other words, I'm going to just give you the key. The key is expectation. The key is expectation, dependence. Dependence on God is what brings a feeling of security. Just saying God, and, and the key to expectation is the idea of dependence is the idea of expectation. I want to ask you a question, friends. Do you live a life, and I realize that we have to get right with God. I realize we don't live it perfectly, but do you live a life that is characterized by rest? Because when your life is characterized by rest, there will be the fingerprints of God on your life. You'll be delivered. There'll be supernatural strength in your life. There'll be a sense of confidence. God's going to do it. God's going to work. Can't wait to see what God's going to do today. But I'm telling you, friends, that's where God wants to live in 2022. And the moment you get anxious, and the moment you get bent out of shape, and I do too, and the moment we get uh, focused on the wrong things and get rattled, we move out of rest. But I got good news for you. By turning, returning, and rest, you can be delivered. You can get right back to that place. There is a place of quiet rest. There is a place of quiet rest. So who are you going to rely on in 22? Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed, heads are bowed, eyes are closed.